Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Joe Johnson, and I am um, uh, I'm glad to be here this morning. If I don't know you, uh, haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. If I haven't given you a hug, I'd love to give you a hug after this. Uh, my family and I uh, were at this church for about three years as I was the campus minister with RUF at Birmingham Southern, uh, which is this denomination's campus ministry. And loved being here, um, uh, loved this church, even this church uh Still has its fingerprints on our family that we actually sing uh, Jeff's Lord's Prayer song every night to our kids. So it was good to hear that live uh, this morning. And I loved our time here. And now um, I'm the campus minister with RUF at Mississippi State. And I've been doing that for a year now. And, um, but every now and then Charles and Matt call me uh, to come preach. And I love to do that. And I feel like I'm like the holiday preacher of Red Mountain Church. And I'm a, I love that. Let's keep it up. So Happy New Year and, uh, and glad you're here. Uh, First Sunday of the new year. I get to do this every now and then because this is a popular time for a pastor to take off. And I always wonder what's a good passage to look at to start a new year. And this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 7, which is about a man dying. Which is going to sound morbid. It's the death of a man named Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Um, And though that might sound morbid, we are a part of Christianity as a religion that based our hope on the death of a Savior. And there's a lot of similarities between the death of Jesus and the death of Stephen. But in this man's death, as quick as it is, just a few verses, we actually see what it looks like to truly live. Because what we find in the last moments of Stephen's life is a picture of a man who finds Jesus more beautiful than anything else in the universe. Enthralled by the beauty of Christ, he dies with a smile on his face. And so this morning, I just want to talk about what Stephen saw. And that maybe this year we can find Jesus to be a little more beautiful in our eyes. So with that in mind, let's read a little bit of a context here. We're only looking at the last moments of Stephen's life. He's a deacon called to serve the church. Was called before a tribunal, a Sanhedrin, on charges of heresy. They asked him to defend himself. He preached Jesus for almost all of chapter 7. And then this is their response. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him, Stephen. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast out, cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said these things, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray one more time. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. And Jesus, we need to see you as more beautiful. Uh, The one that our souls cry out for, the one who spoke us into existence, the one, Lord, our hope is in, in this life and the life to come. And so, as we look at this passage of your servant Stephen dying, help us to see what a life looks like, being enthralled by your beauty, being changed by it, being amazed by it, being saved by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Anne Lamont tells a story in her book, Bird by Bird, uh, of a family who had two children, an eight-year-old boy and a very young daughter, and the daughter was dying of leukemia. 
And there was a blood transfusion that they could do to help save this girl's life. And the search was on for a match. And what they found was that her brother was the match. And that if he were to give a pint of his blood to his daughter, there would be um, some hope of her um, being saved, living longer. And so the parents went to the brother to ask a question. The parents do a lot where you ask a question if the child wants to do something, but you're probably going to make the child do it anyways. But to give them sort of some dignity, and we're going to ask you first, will you give a pint of your blood for your sister? And he sat there quietly for a second and thought about it. And the eight-year-old boy looked at his parents and said, do you mind if I think about it for a night? Right? What a punk. Just do it. Save your sister. And he went to bed that night. Parents said, yes, tell us in the morning. And in the morning, he came out to tell his parents, I'm in. I'll do it. And so the date was set where he was to give blood, and he was in the hospital bed. They took blood out of his arm. They're getting ready to give it to his sister. And the way Anne Lamont tells the story is the little boy, eight-year-old boy, closed his eyes and took a deep breath. And the nurse that was there asked him, are you okay? And he said, when do I begin to die? The boy misunderstood what was being asked of him. Instead of a pint of his blood, he thought he was being asked for all of his blood. Instead of a little sacrifice, he actually thought he was turning in his life to save his sister's life. It's beautiful, right? But think about that night that he was thinking about it. At some point in that night, he was thinking, am I going to do this? And at some point in that night, he decided, yes, my sister's worth this. Uh, What I love about this passage was we're seeing a man who thinks Jesus is worth his whole life and his whole death. That we're seeing a man, what it really looks like to think Jesus is so beautiful, to be in awe of his beauty and his majesty, that he's willing to go through unimaginable things with a smile on his face. And what the story of Stephen forces us to ask this morning is, do we find Jesus this beautiful? In our tradition, we can know a lot about Jesus. In our tradition, we love having a lot of theology about Jesus. But the question that I just simply want to start our year with is, do we find him beautiful? Do we find him to be the one that our soul cries out for? Do we find him to be the one whose body and blood is our only hope in this life and the life to come? Are we in awe of the beauty of Jesus? Because I'm convinced that's the only way lives are transformed. To simply let our souls be in awe over who he is. So this morning, as we walk through this text, I want us to see what Stephen saw. And I'm going to say he saw three things. He saw the beauty of Christ's presence, the beauty of Christ's grace, and the beauty of Christ's plan. The presence, where he is, grace, and then his plan. So first, Stephen was in awe of the beauty of where Jesus was, his presence. Uh, It is a true fact that following Jesus will bring you to places that you probably don't want to go and you didn't ask to go. And that's exactly what the life of Stephen really was. We only know about his life for two chapters, but we know that he was one of the first deacons set aside by the church. Acts chapter 6, the apostles were overworked with the ministry of the word and the ministry of taking care of orphans and widows and those in need. And so, by God's providence and the movement of the Spirit, they decided to form another office of the church, the office of deacon. And a group of men were set aside to do this, and their job was to focus on mercy ministries, feeding orphans, feeding widows, 
so that the apostles could focus on their work of the ministry of the word. And Stephen was one of those men set aside to do that. That actually twice the text says he was a man of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. Respectable person that God was working in and God was working through. The church recognized his gift, put him to work. And Stephen began to do the work of the ministry. The text says he was doing many signs and wonders. We don't really know what that means, what exactly he was doing. But we can at least say his ministry was fruitful. uh, Fruitful enough to gain the attention of a certain synagogue. That all of a sudden the leaders of that synagogue did not like what Stephen was doing. They actually formed trumped up charges of heresy against him. That this man was preaching against the Old Testament of Moses, of the law, of the temple. And so they formed a Sanhedrin, which is 23 to 71 rabbis. Very official, very powerful to call this deacon in to ask him why he's preaching heresy. Why he's preaching against their God. And they would ask him the question... What do you have to say for yourself? And Stephen could have just said, whoa, like I just came to feed some people who need to be fed. I'm just doing good works here. Like I'm not, you can talk to the apostles. I'm not here for this. Instead, Stephen launches into chapter seven, which is basically a summary of the Old Testament. We don't have time to look through this morning. If you have time this afternoon, read through it. Where Stephen begins with Abraham going through the patriarchs. Uh, going to David and Solomon and the temple, and in between those two things, Moses and the Exodus. And he looks at this picture, paints this picture of God continually sending these men that are rejected by the people. And then he ends his sermon by saying this. This is verse 51. This is Stephen. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. That's how he ends his sermon. I'm not going to end my sermon like that this morning. It's a powerful way to end your sermon in front of a group of very powerful people. And what's his point? God's people have a tendency to reject the man, the prophet that God sends to rescue them. And you've done this with Jesus. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in verse 54. Now they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. The Greeks actually stronger. Their teeth are being ground to dust. Their hearts are being ripped apart. But all of a sudden, Stephen finds himself in this place where a group of very powerful men are about to kill him. And I have to wonder, at this point, verse 54, before he gets to verse 55, I wonder if Stephen's having the thought of, I did not ask for this. Right? I was, I was set aside to feed orphans and widows. I was set aside to do works of ministry. No one's going to get mad at the guy who wants to feed orphans and widows. I didn't ask for this. The apostles are supposed to be preaching. The apostles are supposed to be getting arrested. I simply wanted to help people. I did not ask to be brought here, yet Jesus brought them here. And I wonder if he had the question of why. And I wonder if we've ever had that question too, right? Jesus, I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask for this heart of a family life. I didn't ask for this heart of a career. I didn't ask. I didn't want. I didn't, I didn't choose to get into this season of life where we have to deal with like health crisis, mental health issues. Why did you bring me here? Jesus brought him here. But then we only hang in verse 54 for only a couple minutes before we get to see what Stephen saw that we need to see this morning. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
I can't wait, I think about this all the time when studying the Bible, I can't wait to ask people questions in heaven, right? Like, I'm going to sit Stephen down and be like, okay, can you just tell me what this looked like? That all of a sudden, as you're about to die, you look up and see heaven open. That the curtains of providence open. You get to see behind the curtain in the glory of God, whatever that looks like. And that's Jesus standing there at the right hand of God. Actually, it's interesting. It's the only time Jesus is said to be standing at the right hand of God. Every other time, he's sitting at the right hand of God. Right? We say the creed every now and then that he's sitting at the right hand of God. Now he's standing. And what does that mean? It at least means that in this moment, Stephen finds out he's not alone. That Jesus is with him. So much with him, as one commentator said, that Jesus is standing in solidarity with his servant. Almost standing as judgment. That though they are declaring you guilty, I am declaring you innocent in the courtroom of grace. That Jesus is getting ready to welcome his servant home with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That Stephen saw what was really happening. That he wasn't alone in this dark period. He wasn't alone in this trial. But that Jesus was standing over him proudly. And I can't wait to ask Stephen to tell me this story again because I actually think the way Stephen would tell this is I can't really remember what they are mad about. I can't really remember the trouble I got in. But you're not going to believe it. I look up and I see Jesus. And I see the scars on his hands and his feet and he's looking at me but he's talking to the Father. And you know what he's talking to the Father about? He's praying for me. He's interceding for me in my moment of crisis. Where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for his people, interceding for Red Mountain Church, interceding for his people in the midst of their trials. Where do you need to hear that Jesus is there? Where do you need to hear that Jesus is interceding for you in your fight against sin? He's there with you. Where do you need to hear that Jesus is interceding for you? In the midst of a difficult marriage, he's there. Where do you need to hear that Jesus is perfecting your prayers? Prayers too deep for you to understand, too painful for you to understand, that he's interceding for you, perfecting you, sanctifying you through his spirit. His work for his people isn't done. He's still doing it. And Stephen gets to see the beauty of where Jesus is. It's amazing. It's no wonder that he doesn't talk to the people who are killing him. From this moment on, didn't say a word to him. He only speaks to Jesus. Prays to Jesus. The one who's at the right hand of the Father for him. And for you too. The second thing Stephen sees though. Beauty of his presence. Second thing he sees is the beauty of his grace. And really what specifically I mean is grace for enemies. Because can we say that Stephen found some enemies along the way? Right, again, 23 to 71, very powerful men who are looking now like animals. Grinding their teeth, their hearts being ripped apart. And then Stephen sees Jesus at the right hand of God and says it. That he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. Meaning that that Jesus is God. And this is where everything begins to fall apart. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Uh, These are acting like my two-year-old, right? Stopping their ears, running. These are learned men, respectable men who are falling apart. Why? Why? 
I don't think it's simply because Stephen called him stiff-necked, like name called him. I actually think it's because Stephen just clearly articulated that Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, that means everything these men hold, their traditions, their power, their autonomy, is being, being cut at the foundation. Because here's what we need to see. As Kevin DeYoung commenting on this text actually says, this text tells us two things. It tells us that we will have enemies. And we are actually called to love those enemies. The gospel is offensive. Stephen offended these men with the truth of the gospel. The gospel cuts against all of our autonomy. It cuts against all of our self-expressionism. It cuts against every culture. It is offensive because it says that Jesus is king and we're not. And if we follow Jesus, if they hated him, there will be people who hate us too. We will have enemies. But I'll stop because I've got to go a little bit of a caveat here that there's, that there's two wrong ways to react to that truth, that we'll have enemies. And the first wrong way to react to that truth is to be a little too excited about that. There are certain people with certain upbringings, with certain personalities that love conflict. And can we say that in maybe in our denomination, our little corner of Christianity, that we have a lot of people like this who love conflict? That we love fighting? That actually maybe a mark of sanctification or Christian maturity is that I have a lot of enemies, that I stand for truth and they're mad at me because I stand for Jesus? But there's no love, there's no prayer for those people, there's no desire to see them come to know Jesus? It's almost like a badge of honor, sanctification by conflict? I don't see Stephen looking for a fight. I see Stephen serving faithfully and then being dragged into it and having to give an answer, and so he does. I'm not called to be too excited about this. We're called to be a part of our enemies with both truth and love. But the second wrong way to respond to this idea that we'll have enemies is to avoid it. And this is where I'm going to relate to you a little bit more. I'm in Enneagram 9. How are you, man? <laughs> I'm an Enneagram 9, and I avoid conflict um, uh, in most of my relationships. But one bad way to respond to this is to actually say, um, I'm going to avoid that conversation. I'm going to avoid pushing back against that person. I'm going to avoid saying that thing because I actually might hurt their feelings. But if we believe in the greatest truth in the world, if we actually believe in the greatest news the world has ever known, how can I not say it to that person? Even if it might offend, even if it might be awkward, that we need to approach our enemies with both love and truth. And so how do we do that? Stephen actually shows us, verse 60. And falling to his knees, actually let's back up to verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out with a loud voice, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. But as Stephen's dying, he says two things that actually mirror what Christ says on the cross. You know, Christ has seven sayings on the cross. Stephen actually says two of them, almost word for word. The first thing he says, Jesus received my spirit, I'm going to die. The second thing is that he prays for his enemies. He prays for their forgiveness as they're killing him to forgive them. Now what's interesting to me, that the question I will have for Stephen is, did he memorize those two statements? Like he obviously wasn't there when the crucifixion happened. He, he didn't know. But, but maybe the apostles taught it. Maybe those statements were memorized. That, that he had those in mind. He pulls them out almost like scripture at his death. Or 
Are we just seeing Stephen look more like Jesus at the end of his life? Are we seeing what sanctification, what the Christian life and growth look like of becoming more and more like him, becoming more and more beautiful like Jesus, that he couldn't help but to pray for the forgiveness of his enemies, which Jesus answers in at least one person present, which we'll get to in a minute. But how does Stephen do this? The power is looking at the one who gave his life for his enemies. Looking at the one who died for his people while they were still rebelling against him. Looking at the one who died at the hands of his people as he was saving them. That actually what's powering Stephen here in loving these unlovable people is seeing the one who loved him when he was least lovable. Being in awe of the grace of Jesus for his rebellious people. When we see that, all of a sudden we'll become able to love the unlovable, even love our enemies, knowing the truth of his grace. Are we blown away by that? That at the right time, Christ died for his people. But the last thing Stephen saw, the last thing that he was blown away by was the beauty of Christ's plan. I don't want to speak too irreverently here, but... From the outside perspective, Stephen's a failure, isn't he? I mean, from the outside perspective, someone who just kind of saw this death, you would have to think, this is a failure. I mean, how long was his ministry? A couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months? That he was ordained to be a deacon to feed orphans and widows. I don't see that many orphans and widows being fed here. Then all of a sudden, he's called before this council, gives a really good speech, and then immediately dies. For those that didn't see what Stephen saw, For those that wouldn't see what happened after, this actually looks like the end of a very short and very insignificant road. And if I were the writer of Acts, Luke, I wouldn't have included this for two chapters. I mean, two chapters is longer than the Jerusalem Council. Two chapters is longer than Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Stephen gets two chapters of his life here. Why? Because there's more going on than just a man's failure. That actually we begin to see the plan of Jesus that can't be thwarted. Even by killing a leader of the early church. That Stephen's second prayer is answered. Because there's a man named Saul there. Who the witnesses laid down their garments at his feet. Meaning it's almost like signing as a witness that I saw this man be put to death. Stephen, Saul approved of this execution. He was happy about it. And actually, in Acts chapter 8, very next chapter, actually Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved this execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. It's that Saul went on a rampage. He continued to kill Christians, looking hopeless for the church. And then all of a sudden, this man would encounter the very same Jesus that Stephen saw on the road to Damascus, to become Paul, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to be carried on by the Holy Spirit, to write scripture. And you kind of have to wonder, how much did Stephen's death impact Saul? Actually, Sinclair Ferguson points this out. Acts chapter 22, when Paul's sort of giving his testimony in Jerusalem, he mentions Stephen. I mean, he's killed a lot of Christians in his life. He mentions this death in particular. 
And you have to wonder, as Sinclair Ferguson asked, that on the road to Damascus, was Saul thinking about this man? Was Saul thinking about Stephen? Who dies in this way? What did he see? Why did he say those things? Who dies with a smile on his face? Whose death looks like falling asleep in verse 60? What was that? That maybe this isn't a picture of failure. Maybe this is actually a picture of faithfulness. And seeing the providence of God in our lives. That it doesn't look the way we think it might look. But actually God uses the death of a leader, of an up and coming leader, to actually bring the gospels to the ends of the earth through the man who killed him. It's unbelievable. It's actually more beautiful than we can imagine. That what if Jesus' plan is better than our own? This is not failure. This is actually just what faithfulness looks like. So where do we need to trust his providence, his plan? That Jesus is king over our family, and all he's calling us to do is to care for them and to trust him. That Jesus is king over our career, and all he's calling us to do is be faithful with the gifts he's given us. That Jesus is king over our relationships, and all he's calling us to do is to be faithful in them. That he's king over our worries and anxieties, and is just calling you to be faithful in the midst of them. Stephen didn't get to see this, but somehow death still felt like sleep for him because he trusted in Jesus, because he knew he was about to go see Jesus, and that he actually knew that even the gates of hell could not prevail against the church. What would it look like for 2022, which sounds weird, sounds like the future that's not coming, to fall more in love with the beauty of Jesus? Even in the midst of dark seasons, even in the midst of trials, in a dark world where everything seems to be falling apart, what would it look like to simply be in awe over who he is and to rest in his grace and his plan and his presence in your life? Let me pray. Father, we long to be in awe of that beauty. Uh, Far too often we're distracted by the things of this world. Uh, Far too often, Jesus, you're just someone to memorize facts about. And far too often, God, you feel far from us. Um, That life feels more like verse 54 than verse 55. But Lord, help us to catch a fresh vision, Jesus, of you. To see your beauty in the fact that, Jesus, you came... Wearing flesh and dwelling among your people. That you're a God who comes near, a Savior that comes near in order to save a people who are not lovable at all. To make us your lovely bride. Help us to catch a fresh vision of this this year. To find you more and more beautiful. And for that to change everything about our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.